0: Hi, I'm Ju Ru. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Hero Cosmetics. And to me, it's a matter
1: of curiosity. Cult products are almost impossible to manufacture. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. This coveted status grows organically. And happens when a product resonates with a loyal, sometimes fanatic community of fans. In today's fast-moving beauty space, where trends happen at the speed of TikTok, achieving cult status that sticks can be elusive. But harnessing its power to fuel growth and build brands requires vision and serious business chops. It doesn't just happen. Ju Ru, co-founder and CEO of Hero Cosmetics, self-funded the business's launch with one product on Amazon in 2017, building a $100 million brand, redefining the acne category by unlocking the power of the mighty patch. Ju, thank you so much for making the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you, Kelly. Yeah. So, you know, you've worked for some of the biggest brands in the world, Kraft Foods, American Express, Samsung. Can you share a little bit about your backstory and the impetus for diving into the life of an entrepreneur and why you chose beauty?
0: So I'm sort of a
1: reformed corporate
0: person. I, <laughs> I got my MBA at Columbia Business School and in business school, I really wanted to study marketing. I thought for me, it was the perfect kind of marriage of analytics, but also creativity. And I love just sort of understanding consumers and consumer behavior. And I did my internship at Kraft Foods Mondelez in brand management. I actually worked on the planters, the peanuts business while I was there. And then there, just really learn the kind of foundational skills of CPG brain management, which actually, even though I worked in food, I, I still use a lot of that today in beauty. It's universal, I think. It's totally universal, yeah. And then from craft, I did spend some time at American Express. And the difference there is that usually when you work at a big CPG company, you don't have that direct relationship with your consumers because you always sell through a retailer. And so, even though you speak to a consumer you don't you never had that direct data. One of the reasons why I went to American Express is because they had a direct relationship with their card members, so the marketing from a foundation standpoint was pretty similar, you know based on understanding the insights and the emotions and the behaviors. The tactics were actually quite different because You could send direct email and, you know, really study that. I was able to study that really as a channel, which I had never been able to do at a place like Kraft Foods. So spent some time at American Express. And then from there, then I got recruited to go to Samsung and spent two years there. But always sort of in e-commerce and digital and consumer And then when I was living in Korea, on that expat assignment with Samsung is where I used my first hydrocolloid acne patch. And then that, of course, that experience led to the creation of Mighty Patch and Hero Cosmetics. And
1: here we are. I read somewhere that you had the idea in 2013 to launch the brand and bring the product to the US, but you tabled it. Can you share a little bit about sort of that first stab at launching the brand? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, in five years, you've built this massive brand. Yeah, And people always think it's always like sunny and 68 degrees in Jews world.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, you're right. There was kind of a false start, if you will, because I had this idea back in 2013, 14. I actually started working on it. Back then, and I was going to be a solo entrepreneur. I had this idea. I sourced the supplier who we actually work with today. I hired a designer to create a logo and some packaging, and I kind of went as far as I could. And then, right before I was about to place the first PO, I just suddenly got cold feet just thinking about the cost for myself as a solo entrepreneur, because the first PO can be a sizable PO and the amount of work involved and suddenly just became really intimidating. And I mean, to this day, I have so much respect for people who are solo founders because it's a lot of work. And today I have two co-founders. So basically what happened was I made some progress on this idea, sort of tabled it, And then, but, you know, as time went on, the idea sort of was still in the back of my head. And as I saw the beauty industry and category evolving and changing, I always thought this would be a really great product for the U.S. market. And it wasn't until I had dinner with one of my co-founders where I said, oh, you know, I had this idea. I think it would do so well. And he said, hey, if you want to do it, I'll do it with you, roped in his brother and And really having, I think, that accountability made it a lot
1: less intimidating. I've done it both ways. And Beauty Matters, the first time I've been a solo entrepreneur, actually, I've always had partners in the past, but choosing your co-founders is really such a crucial step because it is also one of the biggest reasons that brands fail is because of issues with co-founders. Yes.
0: Believe me, I've seen... A bunch of co-founder relationships go bad. I've seen some pretty ugly breakups and I've talked to founders who started out with a co-founder and it went badly and they still feel really bitter and really angry about it. So you're right. It's not, you definitely have to pick the right people and definitely, you know, work with people who you've worked with before, just so you know what the working styles are like and if you have similar values and and all that because that's also very important.
1: So you launched finally on 2017 with one product on Amazon. And while Amazon first distribution strategies have become much more common in the past five years, you know, when you launched building a brand on Amazon first in the beauty category was really sort of unheard of. I think people a lot of brands were just realizing that they had to have an Amazon strategy period. But can you share a bit about the strategy and the impact it's had on the trajectory of the business?
0: Yeah, you're right. Amazon, I think the like the sort of market perception of Amazon has changed so much in the past few years and probably got a big bump because of COVID, uh, just in terms of perception. But but initially, we had this product, which was Mighty Patch, and we were bootstrapped. So we didn't raise like fancy VC dollars. So we, we had to be really careful about how we approach distribution. Amazon to us made a ton of sense because I mean, I already knew that people were looking for this type of product on Amazon uh, just because you can download like search volumes and search history on Amazon and see what people are looking for and what words are keywords are trending. And so I already knew that people were actually looking for this type of product format on Amazon. So there was that. It was really easy to get up and running because we didn't have to build a website and hire a designer and hire an engineer. The startup costs from that perspective, it was helped us stay really lean. So it was really easy from an execution standpoint. You put up your, you know, sign up for an account, you put up your product page, you figure out the keywords and the right images, et cetera. And then from a customer acquisition standpoint, I mean, where else will you find, access to hundreds of millions of consumers within an ecosystem and really you know there's no other place than on amazon so just from kind of ease of execution knowing that the search intent and search volume was there for this type of product it made so much sense to really start out on amazon Although, you know, to
1: your point, when we started going into retail, I was a bit worried. Did you have pushback when you went into retail? Because I can't really think of another brand that has made the jump from Amazon to sort of a full-fledged brand in sort of traditional beauty channels the way you have. And you did it early on did retailers sort of embrace kind of the brand awareness that brings to a launch? Or did you have sort of pushback around the Amazon strategy?
0: I was totally prepared for pushback. Because again, back then, the perception of Amazon was not very positive. It was oh, it's where people buy cheap things and they don't really care about brand. They just want things that they can access at the lowest price. And so and I knew pricing was always a concern for retailers. And I was prepared for retailers to tell me, oh, you're on Amazon. Well, come back to us when you're off Amazon, or we'll take you if you get off Amazon. But actually, no one said that. So I was pleasantly surprised. And I think it's because we control our pricing. So we are 3P, we're not 1P. And the difference for folks out there is that 1P, you're selling to Amazon almost like you know, any other retailer, and they get to control your price. So they can put you on promotion and do all sorts of couponing or whatnot, as they please. But it's a problem for every other retailer, because then it's hard to compete with the prices that Amazon often has. So because we're 3P, where we leverage our marketplace, and we control the pricing, I think retailers were a lot more open to also carrying our products. And then the other thing that they liked is I mean, back in 2017, this was essentially a new product format and a new product category that retailers didn't quite know what to make of. And I think they liked that we proved demand on Amazon because it made it less risky for them to take our product.
1: The Mighty Patch has truly become, it's reached that sort of hero product cult status with revenue, I think, almost in the nine figures. I mean, some data points were, it's amazing. So you sell one box of Mighty Patches almost every two seconds. The Mighty Patch original has 100,000 reviews on Amazon. And according to our Beauty Matter Market Defense Amazon report, literally Mighty Patch is consistently the number one product beauty product sold on Amazon. And the hashtag Mighty Patch has almost 150 million views on TikTok and rapidly growing. The idea of a cult product is kind of beauty lore, if you will. And hero products are always something that brands strive for. But how have you navigated building a full beauty brand beyond Amazon and beyond sort of a hero skew?
0: Yeah, I mean, once I saw the traction of our Mighty Patch product, it was really about understanding why this product was so successful and then weaving it throughout the entire brand. And so when, you know, we were dissecting like why this product really quickly became a cult product, it's because there's efficacy there. So it actually really works. I think it meets people in a time of need, because when you have a pimple, it really literally can be an emergency in your life. I think it worked better than any other previous solution that was really out there for people. And it's just that whole the aspect of there's kind of an emotional aspect too, like feeling so grateful that this product met you in this moment of need. So taking all those things and really weaving them throughout the entire brand and also our other products to move away from just being kind of a product focused company to an actual brand. And so we have other products like Rescue Balm, which also is a cult product too. And it does the same things. And it's really kind of, Uh, It's been, in terms of innovation, finding the right white spaces for us to tackle where we can hit all those things that Mighty Patch does for people. And then also with the brand, we really try to take it in an emotional place because acne is a very emotional category. Uh, So it's really important that we kind of speak to the emotions that people feel as they break out. And we do that a lot throughout our content.
1: So success as an indie brand is often followed by competition. An emulation, that is just a fact. And the acne category has really been a bastion of big beauty for a really long time. But recently, this indie beauty brand collective – you're sort of the pioneer of it, is creating the shift in the category narrative from shame to one of positivity. And pimple patches have proliferated the market as kind of a treatment form. But first mover advantage and hero skews can also be a double-edged sword. So how have you maintained your positioning as an indie leader in the category that's been flooded with new brands?
0: So we are a category creator. We have a product that really, I believe, is higher quality than a lot of other products out there. And so in the past few years, we've seen the category get crowded, but competition has been around actually for a while now. And actually, fun fact, we still outsell even the closest competitor by a factor of, I think, 5X or something like that. So why? I think it's because, again, the product I think we have a higher quality product that actually has better efficacy. I think we speak to a wider audience than some other brands out there who may be a little bit more niche or very focused and tailored in who they target. Also, our we have this holistic approach to our sort of acne care routine that people really like where it's not just about the Mighty Patch, but it's also about what do you do after your pimple has gone, but you still have redness or hyperpigmentation and things like that, where before there weren't really solutions for people out there, but now we have Rescue Bomb and Lightning Wand and Lightning Swipe and a whole other set of solutions. So for us, it's really about differentiating ourselves with our holistic approach Again, creating that emotional connection, and then I think going forward, it's really just reiterating our position as the category leader and really continuing to act like one.
1: You know, you also took a slightly different path to funding than many of your competitors who launched with the VC-backed playbook. You guys self-funded and bootstrapped the business and only recently took your first outside investment in January 2021 when the business was already approaching $100 million in revenue. So, I mean, you bootstrapped a very sizable business. And I have to say, I have, I would say over the past... Five years, question whether you could self fund a business to scale in this environment. But you have proved me wrong. You clearly can. (laughs) But why did you decide the time was right to take outside capital? And what were you looking for in a partner?
0: Yeah. Why did we raise then? I mean, we were just growing so fast that for us, I mean, we've been profitable since year one. So for us, it was never about the money. It was always about finding people who could help us scale this company because we're all sort of first-time entrepreneurs in the beauty industry and just needed help look, you know, seeing around the corners and the curves. And we were growing really fast and we knew that we needed people who had seen companies and brands scale before who could help us anticipate things that we should be thinking about before it was too late. I mean, that was really the motivation for raising money. And, and we went out to raise in 2020. I mean, fun story, but our term sheets were due the week in March 2020, where the Dow dropped 1,000 points and the lockdown started happening. So we had impeccable timing it all worked out and we ended up raising money from aria growth partners we're actually their first investment from this new fund but really again loved their experience in not just beauty and personal care but also just other cpg companies and you know they've seen some pretty crazy growth stories and trajectories and and also just as people they're really amazing we felt like they really fit the culture of the company they understood what we were trying to do and where we were trying to go. So we've been, yeah, really happy with that relationship.
1: Yeah. So what impact has the capital infusion had and having minority partners? Has it changed the business? I talk to entrepreneurs sometimes because some of them are in the same position that
0: we were in where, oh, you know, I'm profitable, so I don't really need to raise, but maybe I should raise. What do you think? And it's great because when it's a choice rather than a necessity, that's always better. And for people who have companies where they're profitable and they don't need to raise, but are entertaining the idea of raising, some of the pros are, you know, it can't hurt to have extra cash on your balance sheet for sure, because you just don't know what's going to happen. I think having that money gave me a lot more confidence to do things that, I probably wouldn't have done. So for example, one of the first things that we did was we hired our executive team. So we hired some amazing VP level talent. And if we were bootstrapped, one of these roles I was looking for before we had raised the money. And it was really just sort of, like my mentality was like who can we afford what's a you know best talent that we can afford at the budget that we have but after raising the money and having the cash in the bank i was like i don't care i just want the best talent you know we have the money we will pay for whoever is the best person for this role and for this company who has amazing experience and so it gave me more confidence to do things like that and then i think there's kind of like street cred that comes along with it too Because, you know, when you raise, it means you've been through some kind of due diligence and you kind of have this seal of approval, I guess, by some third party investor out there. And so suddenly certain doors are opening up. People will take your call or your email. And I think that can definitely go a long way.
1: Your distribution also, I find, in so many ways, you were sort of the beginning of a shift. And your distribution is really representative of a paradigm shift that we've witnessed kind of, I think, you know, I think probably pushed forward faster. This channel agnostic strategy, because there used to be a playbook, and you could launch here, but you couldn't launch here, you had to go here first. Like there were unwritten rules that we all played by. And I think going into COVID, it was changing. But I think COVID kind of cemented it. And coming out of COVID, it feels like they're gone. It's gone. You can do whatever you want. And there are kind of no no real consequences from sort of a perception standpoint. But you still have to have a strategy, but you have really meaningful representation, Target, Ulta, Amazon, all three very different channels. Can you share a little bit about how you consider retail partners and the role of online versus offline in sort of your growth strategy? Yeah,
0: I mean, when we were starting out, I always knew our business would be omnichannel. And especially for acne, where, like, when you have that pimple emergency, you have to go to a store and you need to pick up something, like, right now. And so I always knew offline was going to be just as important as online. And it's so funny. I think you're so right, Kelly, because I remember. There are, like, traditional kind of ways of thinking when it comes to retail, and it's always – it's, like, one way of thinking is you're either going to be mass or prestige. Uh, you
1: can't be both. Or you could be mastige, but that is still in and of itself defined by a Yeah, channel. and it's funny because when we put out Mighty Patch, we
0: were – at one point, we were in everywhere from a CVS to a Neiman Marcus I I just always thought it was so funny that because I never thought of us as like a particularly luxury or prestige product, but still, you know, retailers like Goop and Neiman Marcus really wanted our products. And so to your point, those lines are blurring. And yeah, I think there are probably no rules anymore. But. Now, when we think about retail, I think the ambition is really to be anywhere and everywhere people need access to acne products. So that's sort of always the kind of guiding light when it comes to distribution. When it comes to picking partners right now, it's picking partners who really understand what we're trying to do with the brand and will help us make really bold brand statements at retail. So... You know, there are some retailers who we were talking to and they're like, oh, you know, we only want three of our SKUs. And usually we'll kindly say, no, then it's not the right time. Because if we're to work together, we really want we want you to take at least 10 SKUs, this many doors with like a really bold brand statement out of aisle or something like that. Because we know that. I mean, that's how retail partners are going to maximize what they're going to get out of a brand partnership with us. So, I think their a retail partner's
1: willingness to do that and really invest in the brand is a big criteria right now. The business has scaled so fast. But you know, the industry is also full of sort of these supernova startups that make a big splash. Some of them look bigger than they are. I mastered that model. <laughs> And then self-funded into oblivion a couple brands. But they don't have what it takes to support growth. What can you share about your recipe for growth that other entrepreneurs can learn? Because I think that so many brands that find themselves having launched a really fantastic brand, once you get that awareness, the kind of do or die moment is can you fund the growth that is expected? And I think the inventory needs and the operational requirements that need to be in place to kind of capitalize on that moment very often aren't there. In the end, it comes down to cash flow sometimes. But what can you share for other entrepreneurs that, you know, they can also sort of capture these kind of moments in time where there's an inflection point in their brand?
0: You're so right. Infrastructure, it's not sexy, but it is literally the backbone of any growing company and you need to make investments in it. I mean, I'd say like one of the first things that I think we did well that really set the foundation was investing a lot in your team and your people. So, culture kind of always gets overlooked, I think early on just because you're so busy building this, you know, fast-growing company, but For us, you know, the three founders, we put a lot of emphasis in hiring and building culture and making sure people really liked working at Hero. We have really low attrition rates, too, because that was a goal of ours. We wanted when we hired people, we wanted people to stay and hiring really great people who would pull from their experiences and really add their knowledge about processes and what they did at, you know, XYZ company that would work here. I think that is really critical. So investing in people definitely should be a top priority. We one of the things we did kind of late that I wish we did earlier was investing in finance as a function, uh, in-house. So, you know, obviously when you're small, you're gonna outsource a lot of things, but you should think about investing in finance as a function sooner rather than later because it's really complicated and you need to have really good books and it's really important for raising money, for any kind of exit that you may consider, for just having visibility, like day-to-day visibility into the operations of your company. I mean, fin- like finance is really critical. We did a migration to NetSuite back in early 2021. We did that. That was really painful, but also I think necessary Again, I think for our infrastructure and, and a growing company, you're, you're going to have to do it at some point. Everyone will expect you to do it at some point. Uh, so we made that investment and that change last year. And then it's just, you know, it's about processes, I think, which are always ever-evolving because as we add on more people, we have to, like, rewrite all the processes again because now we have more people who, who need to be consulted or involved. So it's kind of a evolving, an evolving thing. But I would say those are probably some of the bigger things to think about.
1: As you were outlining those, it's sort of putting the infrastructure in place for the brand you want to be rather than the brand you are in that moment. I 100% agree with you. I've, I learned all of those lessons very hard <laughs> over 25 years and have, have gone about things very differently with Beauty Matter, but it is true. I think that when brands launch, they focus on sort of the sexy stuff social media, branding, the product, and all of those things are really important, I think. But it really is sort of those back office functions that at the end of the day, like help you support growth, but they also help you kind of weather these unexpected occurrences. Because, you know, if you just think of kind of the supply chain issues, everyone has been Dealing with if you don't have that infrastructure internally, that's managing your supply chain and finance, then the founder isn't running the business, they're trying to deal with with sort of those operational things. So I think that all of that is such good advice.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad you're asking the question because again, it's it's more fun to talk about brand and community and social media. It's less fun to talk about supply chain and ops and finance, <laughs> but critical.
1: You know, it's one of the reasons when you said you had a false start with Hero. I mean, I also had a false start with Beauty Matter as well. Like Beauty Matter was in my head for almost seven years And I tried launching it once with an aggregation software, but the things I was reading were like so all over the place that the technology didn't work. So I tabled it. And I think sometimes those things happen for a reason. And I think that launching when you have kind of your ducks in a row is so important. I think it also probably comes with age as well. I've launched a lot of brands sort of like, yeah, we like each other. Yeah, we have them. Let's do this. And they no longer exist. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, Hero is still a young brand. I mean, five years is kind of in, if you look at the history of brands, you know, you're still a baby, even though you have this amazing sort of revenue story. But what is your long-term vision for the brand?
0: Oh, gosh, I really see so much potential in this brand to be truly a functional skin solutions brand for all sorts of issues. Obviously, we're starting with acne. And, you know, when I look at the data, like we're getting up there. We're really we are competing soon to be on like a level playing field with some of the the big guys, the big brands out there. But, you know, again, we're still early in our journey. But I think the idea is really just to continue to offer solutions for all sorts of skin concerns. I think that's where we excel. And that's why people love our products so much is we really do offer a solution in this time of need. And So whatever that need is, as it pertains to your skin, I'd love for us to be able to offer a solution. I can't wait to go global. We're talking about certain closer in markets. I was just in London a few weeks ago and stopped by Liberty London and saw our products and and I can't wait. I can't wait to launch in Asia and learn more about China. And, you know, we're getting a lot of requests from people in other countries like, oh, when are you going to come to Mexico or whatnot? And so I, you know, I can't wait. I can't wait to find really amazing retail partners or launch via Amazon or, you know, just visit some of these regions and be able to offer our products there also. How many markets
1: are you in right now? We're really
0: just in the U.S. We're like 99.9% a U.S. business. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what I thought. Wow. There's still so much opportunity for the brand. It's really, really exciting. Yes. It's a really exciting time, I think, to be at the company. I think founding stories are always great, but it's always – I'm always so grateful when founders come on and sort of get into the nitty-gritty of how they've done things so other people can learn. So thank you so much for sharing that part of the business as well.
0: Well, thanks for having me and letting me share about the business.
1: Hi, I'm Ju, and for me,
0: it's a matter of curiosity, because I think the more that you ask questions and are curious, the more you'll uncover opportunities.
1: For Ju, it's a matter of curiosity. Hero Cosmetics' product, The Mighty Patch, has reached coveted cult status consistently topping Amazon's list of best-selling beauty products and maintaining its first-mover advantage to build a comprehensive acne brand. In an environment where founding stories often evolve and get sanitized for marketing purposes, Ju is very open about her false start and how putting the brakes and restaging ultimately set up Hero for success. I've recently questioned the ability of self-funded brands to compete in today's beauty landscape, but Ju and her team have proven me wrong. Scaling Hero to a hundred million dollar business before bringing in outside investment, and they're just getting started. So in the end, it's a matter of curiosity. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.